We're going to continue our slow stroll through this chapter. We're taking the summer to walk through John 15, really the first 17 verses of this chapter in a kind of a slow fashion, taking a couple of verses a week and just meditating on a passage of scripture that that speaks to the essence of the Christian life. It speaks to the essence of gospel spirituality. It, it identifies what we are all about as followers of Jesus. We know that the Christian life isn't about learning to live for Christ because that can be exhausting, that can be ineffective, that can be um, really distracting as we lose sight of the one that we are walking with or journeying with through this world. And so we know the Christian life is not about living for Christ. We're saying a lot of this text but the essence of the Christian life, the essence of gospel spirituality is that you and I will learn how to live in Christ, be in relationship, in dynamic communion with God in Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. What, what is the goal of your life? If you were to write it down on a piece of paper, if you were to articulate it or communicate it to someone over lunch or dinner, what is the goal of your life? Well, let me ask it another way. What if, what... What is it that if it doesn't happen, you're going to think you have missed the reason you're alive? What is it that if it doesn't happen, you're going to feel like you've missed the very reason for your existence, the reason for the life that you've been given to have in this world? Now, there are a lot of ways that that question can be answered. What is the goal of your life? There are a lot of voices that speak to answering that question in our culture and in our context. And it seems to me that we live in a place that really answers that question in one of two general ways. There are some voices who tell us that the goal of life is to be successful. And this is kind of how we're raised and how we're reared in our context. We get into high school, we're given a guidance counselor. The guidance counselors help us think about the future. What do we want life to be like 10 years, 15 years, 20 years from that point in time? And usually the conversation centers around vocation. It centers around what kind of job do you want? What trajectory do you want to put your life on and then follow with everything that you are? And we get the impression that the goal of life is to be successful. And so all of a sudden the career becomes everything that we're going after. But the challenge of that is that you can give your life to your career and yet not achieve the goal of being successful. You can give your life to that goal and it not be realized, it not be fulfilled. Meaning you can get a job and yet miss out on that promotion. You can get a job and it locate, relocates you to a place in the world that you don't want to be in. You can get a job and never quite reach the bottom line that you think you need to reach if you're going to be happy, if you're going to be considered successful in your life. You can make success your goal and not achieve it. But then there are others, of, others who say otherwise. They say, okay, the goal of life isn't so much being successful. The goal of life is just trying to be comfortable. So we want to live a life, fill our lives with stuff, surround our lives with a certain rhythm and a certain routine, with certain uh, items that can contribute to a comfortable life in this world. And that's another goal that many people live for. It's not that they want to be successful. They're highly ambitious. They just want to be very, very comfortable. And just like success, you can give your life to that goal and not attain it. You can give your life to the goal of being comfortable in this world and not achieve it because there are so many things that come into play that you have no control over as it relates to your comfort. Meaning you can surround yourself with a comfortable, cozy life and yet your body can break down. Your body can betray you. And you can find yourself suffering physically due to something that you have no control over because and in so doing, comfort suddenly eludes you. Or 
You can surround yourself with all types of comfortable things, and then an earthquake can shake things up, cause things to come tumbling down. All of a sudden, the goal of your life can go unfulfilled. The goal of your life can crumble. So there are some who say the goal of life is to be successful. There are others who say the goal of life is to be comfortable. But you know what Jesus says the goal of life is? Jesus says the goal of life is not to be successful. He says the goal of life is not to be comfortable. He says that the goal of life is to be fruitful. This is exactly what he's getting after in John chapter 15. He's reminding Christians of the true goal. The deepest goal of our lives is to be fruitful. And what I love about this dynamic is that this is the same goal that God gave humanity when he created us. If you remember the conversation that went down in the Garden of Eden, God created everything good, created everything, declared it all good, placed Adam and Eve in a place called Eden. And what's the first thing he told them to do? He looked at Adam and Eve and said, I want you to be fruitful and I want you to multiply. That was what he told them to do. That was the goal of their lives, to be fruitful and to multiply. That means to fill the earth with those who would image forth God. Fill the world with image bearers who would reflect to one another what God is like. That was the goal of their lives. Now, you know that sin messed that up. They were eventually kicked out of Eden and sin distorted that goal. And so what we did was we populated the world, but we weren't fruitful. We weren't fruitful in multiplying because all of a sudden sin distorted the image of God. We weren't reflecting what God was like to one another or to anyone else. And, and so things got sideways. But the point is, in creation, God said the goal of your life is to be fruitful and to multiply. And then when you get to the gospel, Jesus is talking about a new creation. He's talking about redemption. And what does he say the goal of life is? Well, he says the exact same thing. He says the goal of life is to be fruitful in this passage. Then when you come to the end of the passage, what does he say? I want you to be, at um, the end of the gospel, he says, I want you to multiply. So be fruitful and multiply was the goal of creation. Being fruitful and multiplying is the goal of redemption as well. And the good news about this being the goal of our lives is that if you give your life to Jesus, you will achieve that goal. There's not a single person who has a relationship with Christ and does not experience fruitfulness happening in them. This is exactly what Christ is saying. He's saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him, that is, those I'm in relationship with, produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. So if you give your life to Jesus, you, you're not going to miss the goal of your life. You give your life to Jesus and all of a sudden the goal for your creation and the goal of your redemption can be fulfilled. Because the goal of our life is to be fruitful. Now what type of fruit are we supposed to grow? What type of, what does fruitfulness look like in our lives? And I think when you look closely at this passage, you're going to see two kinds of fruit. One is the fruit of gospel character. Meaning as you step into relationship with Christ and you remain in him and he remains in you and you engage in that dynamic relationship, gospel character is going to grow in you. In other words, the image of God that was distorted by sin, that image is going to be restored. It's what the New Testament refers to as the image of Christ. And we're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is a goal of our salvation. It is the purpose of our redemption to grow in gospel character. And what this means for you and for me is that who you are becoming is the most important thing about you. Who you are becoming is infinitely more important than what you are achieving in this life. This is why you don't want to make success the goal of your life. Because you can be successful in this life. You can scale the ladder of promotions and 
and bottom lines, and you can achieve great success and do cool things with your life in this world and yet leave your character behind. In fact, we live in the kind of world where it's possible for you to achieve great success while your character is neglected. In fact, you may even achieve great success because you've left your character behind. But what you find here is that the whole goal, the whole reason you were created, and the whole reason why you are redeemed in relationship with Christ is so that your character can be transformed, so that the fruit of gospel character may blossom. So who you are becoming is infinitely more important than what you are achieving in this life. When you die and you leave this world, you cannot take your accomplishments with you. Your bottom line, your bank account will be left here. Your house will be left here. Your clothes will be left here. Your cars will be left here. Everything will be left here except for your character, except for who you are becoming. So if you want to focus on something with the time and the space that you get in this life, you want to focus on something with the time and the space you have in this world, focus on who you're becoming. Recognize that the goal of your redemption is to bear fruit, and that involves the fruit of gospel character. But it's not just the fruit of gospel character. You keep reading on through John 15, you're going to discover that it's also the fruit of gospel influence. That as you bear fruit, as you are conformed into the image of Christ, as you, the image of God is being restored in you and, and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and long-suffering and self-control, all that fruit is blossoming in your life. You're going to find yourself growing in gospel influence. You're going to leave an impression on those around you that can last for eternity. Because all of a sudden, your relationship with Christ becomes so attractive to others that others want to come and be nourished by that relationship. Others want to come and link into that relationship. And you find influence growing as a result of the character that is being formed in you. And this is another reason why comfort can't become the goal of your life. Because if comfort is the goal of your life, you are not going to be able to, you're not going to see much gospel influence growing. And the reason for that, in order to love people, at times you're going to have to make sacrifices. In order to honor Jesus, at times you're going to have to say no to bad things. In order to honor Jesus, at times you're going to have to say yes to good things. And when you say yes to some things and no to others, sacrifice always comes into play. You're sacrificing a want. You're sacrificing a desire. You're sacrificing something that you find attractive, perhaps, believing that the yes is much better. And so if you want to grow in gospel influence, you can't pursue the goal of comfort because comfort will oftentimes get in the way. It's really hard to love people the way Jesus loves them if we want to be comfortable. Because our addiction to comfort is going to want to keep us cozy. And loving people requires risk. Loving people involves sacrifice. Loving people can be hard. And so if our goal is comfort, we're not going to realize this. And so what we want to see is that fruitfulness is the goal of our creation, fruitfulness is the goal of our redemption, and we want to grow in the fruit of gospel character and the fruit of gospel influence. So the question then becomes, how do we do that? How do we grow in Christ? How do we see this type of fruit growing in us? Now, when it comes to growing in Christ and maturing as a Christian or growing in these directions, there's a couple of extremes that I want us to avoid. One extreme, it comes over here on this side and says, you know, uh, I'm going to view Christian gro growth kind of like, like riding in a motorboat. You know, you get into a motorboat, you turn the key, and you control the power. You control the energy. You control the direction that that boat is going. 
You sit down, you're at the steering wheel, and, and you determine everything. You are in complete control of what happens. And there are some Christians who think that's how you grow. So if you're going to grow, then you have to really grit it to do so. If you're going to grow, you have to take control of your relationship with God. You have to get after the things of God. You have to start doing the things that Christians are supposed to do. So you start reading your Bible and praying and going to church and doing all the things that maybe you see other people doing. And if you're not careful, you're really just kind of aping a kind of conduct and hoping, and hoping to get good results. And so there are some say that you can't grow unless you are fully engaged and fully in control of your relationship with Jesus kind of like driving a motorboat. Then there are others who kind of take the opposite end of the spectrum. They, they don't view growing in Christ like a motorboat. They view growing in Christ like a, like a rudderless raft. And so you have this rudderless raft sitting in the water, and, and you just kind of lay on it, and you just let go, and you let the tide and the ebb and the flow just kind of take you wherever you want to go. You have no control. You make no contribution. You're not really involved in the process. You're just laying there and letting the tide take you. This sometimes comes out in Christian conversations where we say things, well, just let go and let God. Just be passive. So on one hand, you have a very aggressive approach if you're going to grow. And that aggressive approach can wear you out. It can wear you down. It can lead to a lot of frustration. But at the same time, you have a very passive approach to growing in Christ. And this can be interpreted as, as well, being spiritually disengaged, as not really taking advantage of the gifts that God has given you to grow. And so you can move from motorboat mentality to rudderless raft mentality, and you just kind of oscillate between the two. And as you do so, real organic fruit's not going to grow in your life. You may improve in some areas, but those improvements are going to be kind of like the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees were kind of in this motorboat mentality, and they worked really hard to be righteous. They worked really hard to be seen a certain way, and many people would have viewed them as fruitful. But if you got close to a Pharisee, and you try to take a bite of the fruit that was growing in their lives, what you're going to find is what Jesus exposes in the Gospel of Matthew. He talks about how the Pharisees look righteous, but if you bite into them, they taste like poison. And there's a lot of Christians, perhaps, but maybe you've been there, that have oscillated between the two extremes of being overly aggressive and overly in control of their growth in Christ, and others who've been incredibly passive and disengaged, and, and they may look They may look like they're fruitful. They may appear in these ways because they do the right things, they say the right things, they walk in the right way, whatever the case may be. But if you get up close and you take a bite, you might not find something nourishing and you might not find something enjoyable. You might find something completely different. And so what we want to talk about when it comes to growing in Christ is we don't want to be like we're controlling a motorboat. We don't want to be like... We're riding on a rudderless raft. Instead, we want to embrace what's called a, and this is, um, yeah, just put this analogy, kind of like a sailboat. You think about a sailboat. There are two things that that are required for a sailboat to make any progress, for a sailboat to move. On one hand, you need wind. But every sailor knows that they can't control the wind. They can't control the speed of the wind. They can't control the direction of the wind. They can't control anything about the wind. So you need wind if a sailboat is going to grow, but you also need something else. You need sails. But you don't just need sails to be wrapped around poles lying in the bottom of the boat. You need sails that have been hoisted. In other words, if you are going to grow in Christ, you need the wind of God's spirit. This is exactly what John says. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 8, he says, The wind blows 
where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. He says the Spirit of God is like the wind. You can't control the wind. You can't control it. You can't dictate it. You can't manipulate it. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit of God. And so if you're going to grow in Christ, you need wind. You need the Spirit of God, but you don't just, but in addition to wind and the Spirit of God, you need sails that are hoisted. In other words, you need faith that is being exercised. Faith that is being exercised in order to grow. That's what enables a disciple, a Christian, to develop fruit. So you think about what it means to exercise faith or to hoist these kinds of sails so that you can, in a sense, be caught by the wind and steered by the wind and moved by the wind. This is the Christian life. We are people who are caught by the wind and who are hoisting the sails of faith so that the wind is blowing us where the wind wants us to go and the wind is leading us through this world as we're being filled and led and empowered and guided by the Spirit, but all the while, in order for that to be caught by the wind, you have to hoist some sails. You have to exercise faith. And there are three types of faith I want to encourage you to exercise in light of this passage. One is this. If you're going to grow in Christ, it begins by dwelling in Christ. It begins by you and I believing what God says about us in Christ. So we hoist the cell of faith and we start dwelling in Christ. This is kind of the key of this passage. There's one word in verse 5. It's the word remain. And that's the key word of this whole text in verses 1 through 17. The word remain. It starts in verse 4 and all the way down to verse 11. It will pop up ten times. Now, if you're reading the CSB like me, I'll be honest with you, I don't like this translation. I don't like the word Remain. I think it's a terrible translation of what's going on in this passage. The word remain, I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to be alive to remain, right? A a branch can die and break off a tree and remain on the ground next to the tree from which it fell. A corpse can be placed in the coffin and remain in the coffin. It's not going anywhere. Dead things remain, which is why I don't like this translation. I prefer the translation of the word abide. And some of you are working through the ESV and you see the word abide popping up. Or, which is a word that also means inhabit. That which is living abides. That which is living inhabits. That which is alive takes up residence in a certain location. And he's saying, look, if you're going to grow as a Christian, it starts by dwelling in Christ. It starts by making your home in Christ. Because you are alive. You have a living relationship with the Savior. And if you look at verse 9, this kind of, is kind of rounded out a little bit in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love or abide in my love. What he is saying is that to abide in Christ means to abide in the love of God. So what this means is that you want to live your life like a loved son or a loved daughter. You don't want to live your life as if you're trying to prove yourself to the God who created you and the God who has rescued you in Jesus. Instead, you want to abide in his love. You want to dwell in Christ. You want to know that you are loved like a son. You are loved like a daughter. I was on Twitter not too long ago, and there's this girl who I'm friends with on Twitter who she's not a follower of Jesus. She doesn't know the love of the Savior, and her handle gets me every time. Her handle says this, I am just trying to matter. I'm just trying to matter. 
That's what she wants her life to do. She's just trying to matter. Well, do you understand that the reality of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus is that you don't have to try to matter? You're not living your life trying to matter. You're not reading your Bible trying to matter. You're not praying trying to matter. You're not going to church trying to matter. You're not doing anything trying to matter. You're dwelling in Christ. You're remaining in his love. You recognize that you already matter, that God loves you, that God sent his son to die for you, that Jesus wants a relationship with you. So you're not living your life trying to matter. You're living your life recognizing that God already says you do. And if you're going to grow, that's the paradigm shift that has to happen. That's 101 to Christian growth. You have to live like a loved son or a loved daughter so that everything you do, you are doing in response to God's love, not in an effort to earn it. So we want to dwell in Christ. That's where we grow. That's where growth starts. You wake up tomorrow morning. Let, do not let the first thought you have be, well, I'm alive today. I've got to prove myself. I've got to prove myself today. I've got to earn my keep. Don't let that be the thought you have when you wake up in the morning. Instead, wake up and think differently. Wake up and remind yourself, I am loved by God. And if I don't have to prove myself to God, I don't have to prove myself to anyone. And when you realize you don't have to prove yourself to anyone, suddenly you're set free to actually love everyone. Because now you're not doing things in hopes that they will accept you, in hopes that they will approve of you, in hopes that they will give something back to you. No, you're just loving for love's sake. You're serving for, ser for service's sake. You're doing all things for the glory of God. And so you wake up in the morning and you don't say, okay, I'm going to prove myself today or I need to prove myself today. No, you wake up and you live in light of the fact that you are already approved of by God in Christ. And so that's where Christian growth begins. It begins by dwelling in Christ. But not only do we dwell in Christ, we want to draw life from Christ. We want to draw life from Christ. This is what verse 5 is getting after. It's the imagery of the vine and the branches. And you know that branches draw life from the vine. That the vine pumps nourishment because they are organically connected. The branches are grafted into the vine. And it's pumping life. It's pumping nourishment into the branches. And actually the vine is determining the fruit that's growing. And so if we're going to grow, then we have to draw life from Christ. This means we have to uh, resist the temptation to seek life in substitute vines. You wake up one day and you're afraid. Where do you turn? You wake up one day and you're anxious. Where do you go? You wake up one day and you're, you have no peace. What do you do? You wake up one day and you're feeling guilty, you're feeling shame. Where do you go? Where do you turn? What are you gonna draw, where are you going to draw life from in your weakest, most vulnerable moments? Well, if you're going to grow in Christ, you draw life from Christ. You don't look for a substitute vine. And there are lots of substitutes around us. Everywhere you turn, you can see substitute vines. There are traditional forms of substitutes, traditional forms where somebody says, okay, I, I want life, I want my life to change, I need things to happen, so I'm going to get religious. And so they may start going to church. They may buy a Bible and start reading it. They may start doing religious things. And all the while, what's happening is their, their life may be changing, but it may not be changing in the way Jesus wants it to change. It, they may be changing to look more, a lot like the Pharisees, a lot like the Pharisees whose lives centered around the synagogue. A lot like the Pharisees whose lives were filled with Bible. They read the Bible all the time, but they didn't grow fruit. At least they didn't grow real fruit. They weren't becoming like Christ. 
I know this because in John chapter 5, I believe it's verse 38, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and says, look, you got to search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. You're reading the Bible because you think the Bible is going to give you life. But he tells them, he says, look, I want you to know that the scriptures bear witness to me. He's saying there is a wrong way to read the Bible. And if you are reading the Bible for any reason outside of the worship of Christ, if you're reading the Bible for any reason other than drawing life from Christ, you're not reading the Bible correctly. And the more you read the Bible in those ways, the more damage it's going to do on your heart. The Pharisees read the Bible all the time. They searched the scriptures seeking to find life, and they couldn't find it. Why? Because they didn't realize that the Bible was the means to life in Christ. The Bible was to show them how to draw life from Jesus. And they weren't drawing life from Jesus. They were rejecting Jesus. And so there are traditional forms that can serve as substitutes. They they look a lot like religions. But then there are also kind of less traditional and more trendy forms of substitute vines that people can look to to find life and to draw life from in this world. I came across an article in the New York Times not too long ago talking about how spirituality is booming in recent years among millennials and how millennials are rejecting religion in in favor of various forms of spirituality. This article said that more than half of young adults in the United States believe that astrology is a science, that the psychic services industry, which includes astrology, aura reading, all that type of stuff, is now worth $2 billion annually. That's a big pocket, right? That's a big bottom line. There's a woman named Melissa Jane who owns a Brooklyn-based metaphysical boutique is what she calls it, Uh, She's seen a big uptick in her business, especially among people in their 20s. And her store offers workshops like Witchcraft 101, Astrology 101, and a Spirit Seance. She says, get this, whether it be spellcasting, tarot, astrology, meditation, and trance, or herbalism, these traditions offer tangible ways for people to enact change in their lives, tangible ways for them to find life. She said, for a generation that grew up in a world of big industry, environmental destruction, large and oppressive governments, and toxic social structures, all of which seem too big to change, this can be incredibly attractive. In other words, the wind is too big. I can't control it. So I'm going to shirk those things, and I'm going to focus on these little spiritual things that I might can control if I can learn the right thing, if I can say the right thing, if I can do the right thing. And so you have this shift. You have traditional substitutes, but you also have trinity substitutes. You have religious substitutes, and you have what might be considered spiritual substitutes. But what they share in common is the fact that they always terminate on the self. The fruit that spiritualities produce and the fruit that being overly religious produces is a fruit that is focused and centered entirely upon the self. In other words, it's all about the person involved. It's all about you. But if we hear what Jesus is saying in this text, and if we hear what Jesus is saying about drawing life from him, if you're drawing life from him, the first thing you've got to learn is that life isn't about you. And you aren't supposed to live a life that centers on the self. No, if you're going to draw life from Jesus, then your life is going to discover, or you're going to discover that life is found when you become other-oriented. When your life no longer centers upon you, but your life centers upon the other. Your life centers upon the vine, that is Jesus. And your life centers upon those around you who are finding things in your life that nourishes them. Or find things about your life that they enjoy. 
so that you're loving for love's sake, you're serving for service sake, you're doing all things for the glory of God for the other, not necessarily for the self. I mean, think about it this way. What tree benefits from the fruit that it produces? No tree eats its own fruit. Every fruit that comes from a tree is enjoyed by someone else. It is enjoyed by the other. There's a plum tree along our old house on the street, and my kids would walk past it day, uh, on a regular basis, and every time they saw plums, they would grab it. They would bite into these plums, and those plums would nourish them. Those plums would be enjoyed by them. The fruit that that tree produced wasn't for the tree's sake. It was for the sake of the other. And when we learn to draw life from Christ, we find ourselves living for the sake of the other, living for the glory of Jesus and living for the good of those around us. And when fruit begins to blossom, suddenly your life becomes very nourishing to those around you. And all of a sudden, your life is enjoyed by those around you. I mean, who doesn't enjoy someone who's like Christ? Do you ever get, uh, I mean, seriously, do you, don't you want to be around somebody who's marked by love and joy and peace and patience? Kindness, goodness, long-suffering, self-control. Aren't those the type of people that you find attractive? Aren't those the ones you want to spend your lives with? Well, this is what Jesus is saying. I want my people to be the most attractive people in the world because they're producing the fruit of gospel character. And they're producing the fruit of gospel influence as a result. And so we don't want to buy a substitute vine because a substitute vine turns life inward. We want to be sunk into the true vine because Jesus turns life outward. And he says, look, life isn't about you. It's about the other. It's about the Savior and those that you get to love and serve in light of the Savior. This is where life is found. And the reason why this is where life is found is because this is what God is like. Do you realize how other-oriented God is? There's a reason we as Christians believe in the Trinity. We believe that God is Trinity, that he exists eternally as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And what's happening in the Godhead is an emphatic other orientation. The Father is oriented towards the Son. The Son is oriented towards the Father. The Holy Spirit is sharing in the revelry of this other orientation. That's what God is like. And when fruit is growing in us, we become other oriented. We become God-like. We start glorifying Jesus and serving those around us, not for our sake, but simply for theirs. We start loving people for love's sake, serving people for service's sake, doing all things to the glory of God. And so if we're going to grow, we want to dwell in Christ. We want to draw life from Christ. And then lastly, we want to depend upon Christ. He says at the end of verse 5 that, that apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing without me. So we want to depend upon Christ. He's saying, look, any other way is going to result in self-centeredness. My way always results in an other orientation, and you can't find it in any other dynamic. He says you want to depend upon, or we want to depend upon Christ. What this means is that you and I want to use the means that God has given us to grow. We want to use the means that God has given us to grow in Christ. Now, there are a lot of means that God has given us to grow. He's given us the Bible, right? And if we read the scriptures to get to know Jesus, we're reading the scriptures well. He's given us prayer as a means to grow. And if we're praying to talk to Jesus, we're praying in a way that, that honors the purpose of prayer in our lives. He's given us one another to fellowship with and to share life together with. And we're fellowshipping with one another and serving one another in light of Jesus. 
We're utilizing the gifts that God has given us to grow. Now, this is the part of the message where some of you, your, your eyes may be tempted to glaze over because you may think, maybe you've been around church long enough that you know, okay, this is the part where the guy talking about the Bible is going to tell me to read the Bible and pray and, and go to church. And you might be thinking, well, isn't there anything else that Christians do? You know, Christian life doesn't sound very exciting. I'm always being told just to read the Bible and pray, go to church. That's the only thing it seems that they know how to do. Well, I am going to tell you those things. And the reason why I'm going to tell you those things is because you can't grow in Christ unless you embrace the basics. And you can't grow in Christ unless you sink into the mundane of the means that God has given us. You can't grow in Christ unless you embrace some form of routine in your relationship with Christ where you're spending time with him and you're taking advantage of the gifts that he has given you. If you're going to walk with, well, let me put it this way. This way, So Jesus is saying the Christian life is about uh, finding life in me. And then Paul will introduce a different metaphor about what the Christian life is like. He's saying the Christian life is like a walk. He's saying Christian life is about walking with God. It's about walking with Christ. It's about walking in love. Now, is there anything more basic than walking? Is there anything more pedestrian than walking? Is there anything more routine than walking? If not, then we want to think really hard about how we respond to the admonition to read your Bible and to pray and to go to church. If we're going to walk with God, which is a, which there's nothing more pedestrian than walking, there's nothing more routine than walking, there's nothing more basic than walking. If we're going to grow in Christ, then we need to recognize that there is beauty in the basics. There is value in the routines. Opening your Bible every day and reading it to meet with Jesus praying every day to talk to Jesus, regularly gathering with God's people so that you can worship and serve Jesus. Those basic Christian disciplines, those basic Christian graces are how we grow. So we want to embrace what's basic. We want to grab hold of some routine in our lives. In fact, I would say you cannot grow if there's no routine in your relationship with Jesus. Now, you might think, well, what about those moments? What about those days and those stretches when everything seems boring and dull and I'm not feeling it? I'm reading the Bible and my affections aren't stirred. I'm praying and I don't feel real excited about talking to Jesus. Or I go to church and the sermon sounds like this one and it's like, ah, what am I going to do? Well, let's come back to the sailboat analogy. There's something that sailors are very familiar with. There's something called, uh, say the word right, doldrums. How many of you have heard of doldrums? A few of you? Now, a doldrum is basically these uh, extraordinarily warm waters that pop up the closer you get to the equator. And what happens when you reach these doldrums is that the wind dies down. And they're unpredictable. Sailors, those sailing ships, all those types of things, they can't really tell when they're coming. They don't know when they're going to happen. But the wind can just die drown, down in these certain areas of the ocean. And when the wind dies down, if you're sailing a boat, you can't go anywhere. And boats can be stranded for an indefinite period of time. And they have to, all they can do in that moment is wait for the wind to pick back up. And until the wind picks back up, they're not going to go anywhere. Well, I know that in the Christian life, as you walk with God, as you abide in Christ, there are going to be seasons and stretches where you experience doldrums, doldrums. Where you find yourself in moments when the wind doesn't seem to be blowing. And nothing seems to be happening in your relationship with Christ. What do you do in those moments? 
Well, you do what you can do. You continue to hoist the sails. You continue to do the things that you can do. You hoist the sails of faith and you wait upon the Lord. You're not going to be stuck in a doldrum forever. Hoist the sails. The wind is going to pick back up. But what you shouldn't do in those moments is bail out and think, well, the cells that I have are dysfunctional. There's no use reading the Bible. There's no use praying. There's no use gathering with God's people. There's no use singing to Jesus. There's no use doing any things that Christians do because I'm just not feeling it. No, you keep hoisting the cells. You keep believing the gospel. You trust that the wind is going to blow again, that the Spirit's going to move again. You wait upon the Lord. What you don't do is try to take control of the boat try to take control of the direction and try to force things to happen so that you try to treat your life like a motorboat or you try to treat your life like a, like a rudderless raft that's, that you can't control. You just kind of sit there and become utterly passive or utterly aggressive. No, you continue to participate. You continue to live by faith, reading the scriptures, live by faith, talking to Jesus, live by faith, gathering with God's people, recognizing that you are to live by faith, not necessarily by feelings. So you wait upon the Lord when the doldrums come, and you keep hoisting the sails of faith. The wind is going to pick back up. There was a poet by the name of Anthony Trollope who said, A small task, if it be done daily, will beat the labors of a spasmodic Hercules. If you want to grow in Christ, you can't pursue spasmodic Hercules. That is going after experience after experience after experience so that everything changes in an instant forever. No, you do the things that you can do on a daily basis. Small tasks. Keep exercising faith. Keep trusting the gospel. Keep reading the scriptures. Keep talking to Jesus. Because a small task done daily will beat the labors of a spasmodic, of a spasmodic Hercules. You know, one of the reasons why I think God allows doldrums to come into our lives is because those doldrums keep us from putting our faith in an experience. Those doldrums keep us from living by faith in what we feel. Those doldrums remind us that our faith is in a person. And this person is one we can't control. He's like the wind. He blows wherever he wills and he does whatever he wishes. We can't control him. We can't tame him. We just hoist the sails of faith and trust him. And we're going to live by faith, not by feelings. We're not going to enthrone our experience with Jesus. No, we're going to seek the real Jesus. That's what we do. And when you seek the real Jesus, that's when real fruit comes. You seek the real Jesus, that's when you find real fruit that lasts. Not because it explodes out of you in an instant, but because it grows progressively and gradually over time. As you learn to hoist the sills of faith and trust the spirit of God to do what he promises to do, that is to cause fruit to come from you. The fruit of gospel character, the fruit of gospel influence, hoisting the sails and trusting and trusting Jesus. This is how we grow as Christians. This is how we grow in Christ. I love what a guy named Kevin DeYoung said when he made this statement. He said, the secret of the gospel is that we actually do more when we hear less about what all we need to do for God. We hear less about all we need to do for God and hear more about what God has already done for us. Now, when you read the Bible, where do you put the accent? When you're reading the Bible, do you only hear what you need to do for God? Or do you read the Bible to hear what God has done for you? The difference makes all the difference. 
the difference turns you, uh, changes you from being a Pharisee and brings you into being a disciple who's going to bear fruit. Because you read the Bible to hear about what God has done for you. You pray in light of what God has done for you. You fellowship with other sinners just like you in light of what God has done for you. This is how we grow. We dwell in Christ. We draw life from Christ. We depend upon Christ. We live in relationship with Jesus, and that relationship changes us. Now, you get into verse 6, and there is a sticky point here as I close. Verse 6, he says, if anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch, and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. A lot should be said about this, more than I have time for tonight. But understand, the, the simple point is this. He's saying, if you do not want a relationship with God in Christ, if you don't want to dwell in Christ, if you don't want to draw life from Christ, if you don't want to depend upon Christ, if you don't want relationship with God in Christ here, you're not going to have it there. This is imagery of judgment. Jesus talks about it a lot in John's gospel, that there is this day of judgment coming, and, and this picture of being discarded is essentially saying, if you don't want a relationship with God in Christ here, you're not going to have it there and so if you don't have a relationship with Christ, if you're not dwelling in Jesus by faith, if you're not drawing life from Jesus, if you're not depending upon Jesus, now you're not going to then because what happens after you leave this world is that you're going to carry the same heart with you. And if your heart doesn't want to be with Jesus now, why would your heart want to be with Jesus then? So we want to think through these dynamics because Jesus is drawing us into the basics of Christianity, reminding us of what is real, reminding us of what is true, reminding us of what is needed if we're going to grow together in relationship with Christ. Let me pray for us.